Welcome to the Keep It Clean podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Dan Gregory. The Keep It Clean podcast was developed around an idea of helping to inspire and motivate fellow cleaning professionals by listening to startup stories and histories of others in the business. Twice each month, we will interview industry icons and colleagues to get their story of how they got started in this oftentimes wonderful and sometimes painful business of cleaning things for other people. Hopefully you will like, subscribe, and follow us so you never miss an episode. And hey, if you wouldn't mind, throw us a review. As always, thanks for listening. In today's episode of the Keep It Clean podcast, we're going to be speaking with Claude Blackburn, the founder of Dry East Products. In 1972, Claude founded and operated Claude's Carpet Care. First year sales were $9,600 with zero employees. And in eight years, the company grew to become the largest carpet cleaning and restoration company in Skagit Valley in Washington State. Claude chaired both the one and two day IICRC water damage restoration exams and later chaired the S500 water damage restoration standard. He personally taught over 100 water restoration seminars attended by more than 2,000 owners and technicians. He wrote the Carpet Cleaner's Guide to Water Damage Restoration in 1980 and Restorative Drying, a 450-page technical manual in 1994. In 1980, Claude founded Dry Ease Products, a restoration training and manufacturing company devoted to the success of cleaning and restoration contractors across North America. Dry Ease introduced many scientific restorative drying principles into the restoration industry, including psychrometry, moisture meters, and desiccant dehumidifiers. Dryies became the leading company designing, engineering, and manufacturing products for drying buildings after abnormal water intrusion. Along the way, his company introduced the first molded air movers and portable dehumidifiers specifically for water damage restoration, the first trailer mount desiccant dehumidifier, the Center for Advanced Restorative Drying, and hundreds of other drying products and processes. Dryee's first-year sales were $180,000, and when he sold the company in 2006, had grown to almost $50 million in annual sales. He says that some of the keys to his success was working from a higher purpose, product innovation, business reinvestment, establishing goals, associate revenue sharing, and the values of integrity, fairness, empowerment, and education. Well, everyone on the carpet cleaning world and the Keep It Clean podcast with your host, Dan Gregory. Today we have, as you heard in the bio, Claude Blackburn is going to be our guest today. Welcome, Claude. How are you doing so far today? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm doing pretty good so far. Wonderful. Now, for those of you who don't know uh, Mr. Blackburn all that well, Claude was a carpet cleaner that morphed into a water damage restoration contractor and into a manufacturer, supplier of products for that. And what I want to ask Claude this morning is, we all had to make a decision at some point to get into the carpet cleaning world, get into the cleaning world of cleaning things for other people. So what was your thought process? What were the things that went together for you when you decided, I'm going to start a company that's going to clean things for other people? And how did, what did that look like when you first thought about that? I think that's a, that's a good historical question. Well, in 1971, I was unemployed. I was receiving welfare. I would pick weeds for $3 an hour, you know, knock on doors and ask people if I could pick their weeds, which I, which I actually hated doing. But I'd do almost anything because I had a wife and a child. I had no income. I also worked for my mother occasionally. We'd started a janitorial service. And that wasn't going very well. She was really struggling just out of a divorce. And that was a pretty tough time for her. And then I started working part-time at North Pacific Ocean Products, which is basically you gut fish for eight hours. And that wasn't much fun. <laughs> I can no, tell I you. I suppose not. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, this ZEP salesman, most people in the professional industry don't know too much about ZEP. It's more of a janitorial line. He said that I should get into the carpet cleaning business. And in fact, he would give me a vacuum cleaner and a dry foam machine. And I could just pay him what I wanted. Hmm. So nothing down. Someday when you get around to it, give me the money. It was $700 worth of equipment at that time. So that's what I owed him when I, when I started business. And with that, I moved in October of 1971. I moved to Mount Vernon, Washington, which was 60 miles north of where I had been living. And that's where I started 
my carpet clearing business. And part of the reason I ended up in Auburn, Washington was that I'd gotten turned. I'd never been there before. I didn't know anybody there, but no one would rent me a house. I had $35 in a car that somebody had given me. And so I had $35 to my name and nobody would rent me a, a house in the town, the bigger town that was up north. And so I got on the freeway. I started heading back kind of disillusioned and I, I turned off the freeway and got turned around and went in and asked for, for directions how to get back out of town from this realtor, Ace Garling House. Anyway, we started talking and I told him my dream was to start a business, a carpet cleaning business. And I was looking for a house to rent. And he says, oh, I've got one right around the corner. Well, how much is the house and what is it like? And he says, well, it's three bedrooms, blah, blah, blah. And it's $115 a month. And I said, well, I've got $35. And he said, he thought for a minute, he was an older guy. By older, I probably mean 50, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, uh, <laughs> and I was 20. So anyway, after he heard my story, he says, I've got just a place for, for you. It's right around the corner and you can move in for $23. And I, I was a little surprised at the $23 because I had $35. And he said, oh, how did you come up with $23? He says, oh, that's the first that's one fifth of the first month's rent. And so we went and looked at the house and that's how I ended up in Mount Vernon, Washington, which is where I cleaned carpets for many, many years. That's where I started dry use products. That's where mm -hmm. I started three businesses over the years. Wow. So, so the thought process of getting into the business was really, it wasn't much of a thought process. I had no education. I dropped out of school in the 10th grade. The kinds of jobs that I would do would be pumping gas, you know, three bucks an hour in those days. That's what you get paid when they're actually attendants, gas stations, mm -hmm. you know, picking yeah, I weeds. I did, <laughs> I did a little window washing. I did some different things. But the thought process was, look, I've got a dry foam machine and a vacuum cleaner. I'm going to start business in Mount Washington. So there wasn't, there wasn't uh, much of a thought process, except I had a wife and a child. Well, actually, by October of 1971, I had two children mm -hmm. and no income. And so that's an opportunity arose. And that's that's what got me into the business was just the only the only door that opened for me at the time. Mm. Well, I, I find that interesting because the stories that I'm hearing from a lot of folks that were starting in the 1970s in the carpet cleaning world were very similar to that, where they met some benefactor that saw something in them and, and promoted them and gave them an opportunity to move forward. Some like Tom Hill started out as a, as a job in high school and a lot of folks along those ways. So Kind of thing that I say in a lot of my classes is as a kid, nobody dreams of growing up to be a carpet cleaner. That's not something <laughs> that you see on on their list of things that right. they want to be. But we all found this industry that's been very good to the majority of people who have been in it, that they can find a, a good way to make a living and feed their families and, and all the other things that those basic needs are covered. And so kind of walk us through then. So you've got the house, you're in the new town. And now you've got this uh, dry foam machine. So you're a VLM guy back in the day before anybody knew what VLM was, uh, the very low moisture folks. And uh, so how did you go about getting work in that? What, what was your process for that? Yeah, well, I had, since I was a little kid, I would go door to door and I would sell used magazines or I would sell Christmas cards. I mean, I'd been doing that because my parents really didn't part with money easily. Lower middle income America extremely tight. So if I would ask for something at the store that was, no, I, we don't have any money. And so that was the standard answer. So we learned if we wanted a candy bar, we wanted something early on, we had to go out and do it. So I was used to knocking on doors. So I literally, literally started Skagit County had 24,000 residents at that time and, or rather 24,000 households, I guess it was. And so I started knocking on doors. And in the, in the 1970s, I'm sure you'd know, the, the carpet was really getting coming in strong. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were carpeting their bathrooms and their, their kitchens even. And you'd walk into a house and, and the whole thing was carpet, you know, in the 70s. That was the trend. And uh, so I'd knock on doors and ask them if I could clean their carpets. And if they'd say, no, I couldn't, because I was a new face and this is a rural community. So why mm -hmm. would they trust some guy they'd never heard of? They didn't know their background. They didn't know what school they went to. But I got some jobs that way. But when they say no to me, I couldn't clean their carpets. Then I'd ask them if I could uh, clean their windows because that was the next thing I liked doing best. 
and some of them would have me clean their windows. And if they didn't want me to clean their windows, I say, look, in desperation, I say, look, you got a lot of weeds in your garden. <laughs> I'll pick I'll pick your weeds for $3 an hour. And so I didn't have any money for marketing per se for the first six months or nine months of, the, of when I got started. But mm-hmm. finally, uh, I was knocking on doors and I heard about Steam Services and I ordered some of these out of Fresno, California. They were a large kind of national supplier at that time. And they had these door hangers. And, uh, and so I bought, I bought quite a few of these door hangers. I know I bought 10,000 over the next year. And we literally walked from door to door to door and knocked on the door. And you know, in those days in the rural communities, the women were at home. I mean, almost always somebody was mm-hmm. at home and we didn't have those signs that says, you know, like today with no salesman or no soliciting or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, but if they weren't home, I'd leave a door hanger. And even if they were home, I'd hand them a door hanger. And over the next year, I, I knocked on 10,000 doors, actually, because I knew when I ran out of these door hangers, how many I had hung. Hmm. And so that's, that's how I started marking my job. I don't think that same technique would work today, of course, with social media and everything else. But I spent, well, over the next coming years, I spent quite a percentage of my gross sales on marketing. I did all kinds of different marketing, but I spent about 10% of my gross income on different types of marketing, whether that was advertisements in those days in newspapers, direct mail, door hangers, you know, shopping cart signs. I spent a good sum and I didn't have a rule book. I didn't have a rule book to go by. So I just did what I thought was the right thing. Yeah. I I don't think a lot of the, the early pioneers in this had a rule book per se, because there wasn't any rules. This was an on location version of a rug plant. It was basically what we were trying to sell at that point. And I think that the knocking on doors thing, that's interesting to me because that's exactly what I did. I, I just looked for more of the, I was started, I was a window washer. And so I knocked on commercial doors and there was a very uh, nice accounting firm that when he said, yeah, go ahead, give us an estimate. What do you think it would cost to do our windows? And I came back with a number for him and he said, son, that's not nearly enough money. (laughs) I was kind of surprised by that. I was like, what do you mean? It's not enough money. He said, you got to make at least this. And he kind of gave me a little 10-minute class on pricing and marketing my services from an accountant's point of view. And so those benefactors were always there. We just had to be open to listen, you know, to what they were talking about. So were were you able to find that knocking on doors was successful? Were you starting to turn over some some revenue? Uh, What what was happening for for you at that point financially? Well, my my first year sales, of course, would have to be inflated today in dollars, but my first year sales were $9,000 in gross sales. And my, I paid, I didn't put cash in my pocket right from the get go. It was all straight up business. And I made $4,500 that year, which was pretty inadequate. I mean, sometimes they shut off the electricity, sometimes that, you know, my house. So I was working out of my house, of course. And sometimes they'd shut off the garbage service. I mean, it just went from one thing to another. But the, in those days, of course, we had to keep our phones alive. Sure. And I, man- I managed to pay my phone bill every month. But you mentioned benefactors. I mean, there's several benefactors that came into play in that first year or two. The car I had, a 59 Chrysler wagon, or not wagon, but uh, sedan, I was hauling my machine around in the back of that, and it broke down. It was a serious enough breakdown that would have cost me two or $300 to get it fixed, which I didn't have. And uh, I was cleaning windows for Mount Vernon Frame and Axle, $16 a month. I'd go in and clean all these commercial windows. Mm-hmm. And I told him that my car, I, I, well, actually, I walked five miles with a bucket and a squeegee and sponge to his business <laughs> to clean his windows. And then he asked me my story and I said, well, my car's broke down and I don't know what I'm going to do. And he loaned me a car, actually a wagon for six months. And he says, well, just, I got an extra car. Just, just take that car and use it. And when you get done with it, bring it back. And so mm-hmm. it was actually more than six months before I brought back his car. So if it wouldn't have been for that, I don't know, I'd probably be pumping gas at the standard Chevron today. (laughs) But, you know, the guy lets me move into a house for 23 bucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This guy gives me his car to use. Really, I'm a total stranger to these guys. I mean, I had never heard anything like that happening before. And so there was a lot of uh, situations. 
But I also think that maybe those people saw something in you that that said, you're honest, you're a hard worker, you're out there walking five miles with a bucket and a squeegee to go to go work. I don't uh, know that people really appreciate what that feels like to be in that position where things that you're trying to do aren't working the way that you thought they should, but yet rather than abandon the, the process, you just decided to forge ahead. And so at what point during that time did you become aware that maybe there's something here that I'm going to be okay with this? What, what did that look like? Well, I mean, when I realized that the carpets were really dirty in the early 70s because steam cleaning hadn't come into play yet. And uh, people were rotary shampooing, but basically they were janitorial. In our area, they were janitorial companies. They would just bring in a scrubber. They didn't really, it was like an afterthought. And uh, well, first of all, there's more to the story. One of the things that happened to me within the first year, I got a call from Ed York of Steam Services. Mm. So I, I bought some of those door hangers from him. And he says, if you come to my training class, I'll guarantee you'll double your income next year. Well, he didn't know what my income was, <laughs> but, but it was not, it was $9,000 for going on $9,000. Well, of course I didn't have enough money to go from Seattle, Washington, North to Seattle, Washington, where Mount Vernon's located to Fresno, California. That was, I, I literally went down to public finance and they would loan anybody money for any reason but you pay 20% interest. That's what it was. <laughs> you know, it was, it was highway robbery, but it was the only place I could get a loan. I borrowed 200 bucks and that got me enough money to fly to Fresno, stay in a cheap hotel and uh, go to my first training school. Hmm. And that was huge. I mean, Ed was quite a carny, but he was quite a salesman, but he changed my life. He changed a lot of lives in the process of him trying to build a business and I went to that one-day class, and it just opened my eyes. And the funny thing about that one-day class, when I got done with that one-day class, I was a changed person. It, was, it just opened my eyes to the world of possibilities, that this was a true profession. And I walked away as a proud carpet cleaner after that, after that training seminar. It really changed everything. And, of course, they crammed everything they could think of, you know, spotting and upholstery cleaning right. and carpet, carpet cleaning and every method. And of course, he loved to sell his vaporback machines, whatever. I did buy one. I learned about steam cleaning. And, and so that made a huge difference. And ever since then, I took advantage of every kind of training opportunity I could get, because not only did I not have training as being a carpet cleaner, but I didn't have any background as being in business. So I studied business. I went to seminars. And in those days, you could go to a one-day seminar and learn how to like one or two-day seminars for ninety-five bucks and get mm -hmm. this one-day intense training. All kind like Paget Thompson and others were going all over North America giving these classes. So I took advantage of those and all the classes that followed. You know, mm -hmm. the the next the next kind of organization I joined, I hadn't even heard of them, was the Carpet Cleaners Institute of the Northwest, and I attended my first convention, and I was just amazed here were successful carpet cleaners with seemed to be making a good living and driving nice cars and well-spoken and they show up in suits you know in that in those days right. if you had enough money if you had enough money out of suit i don't think i had one but anyway and i still remember one conversation i had with a guy named don we'd gone out to lunch i don't know why we left the convention maybe they didn't offer that a lunch that day whatever and I'm just kind of shy and, and introverted. And, but anyway, it came out. I asked him the question, well, because I always like to talk about numbers. I was kind of a numbers guy. And I said, well, how much money do you make in carpet cleaning? Now, remember that the year before I had made $9,000, my goal for this year that I was in was $18,000 gross sales. Mm -hmm. and, and so I was taken home about 50% of that. And I asked him how much he made in carpet cleaning. He says $60,000 a year. Hmm. And suddenly it dawned on me that it was a whole different world. I mean, I wasn't even part of that world. And once you have kind of a vision, it kind of created a vision for me that you could remake a really good living in, in carpet cleaning. So it's funny, even though I was kind of shy and didn't talk a lot and yeah, to people, it's funny how just one kind of moment Mm -hmm. That's such a huge impact on my career that you could make a good living in this business. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm, interesting. I forgot. You know, I forgot your initial question there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. I, I forgot it too. We're going to take a quick break here to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back talking with Claude Blackburn on the Keep It Clean podcast. Carpet Cleaner America's counter-rotating brush technology began in Austria in 1979 and continues today to be a force in the industry all across the world. Our CRV machines are sold in over 58 countries and several territories. These machines are legendary, dependable, and built to last a lifetime and perhaps longer. With all that history comes a bit of wisdom. Our machines are dependable enough to help you get more from your carpet cleaning process. Use our Pro or TM series machines to accomplish any number of tasks in your clients' homes or businesses. From carpet to tile to vinyl floors and yes, even hardwood, with our dry compound cleaning media, Carpet Cleaner America machines work on them all. From pile lifting to deep vacuuming, from agitating your pre-spray before extraction cleaning to low moisture encapsulation. From carpet to tile, we brush it all and we pick it up too. Ask your local distributor for an Austrian machine made to last a lifetime. Or find us at carpetcleaner-usa.com. And we're back with Claude Blackburn on the Keep It Clean podcast. Claude was just reminiscing about the days when he had that light shone upon him. I think we've all had an experience like that where you reach a point uh, where it just starts to click for you. You see what the possibilities are by running your own business. And you mentioned you were kind of a numbers guy. So from there, you're talking, you know, 1972, 1973, somewhere in there. Were you ever able to get to those goals and get to that point of making $60,000 a year as a carpet cleaning professional? Yeah, I was, although it took it took quite a few more years because I would always invest a substantial amount of my gross revenues in new equipment. So first it was a portable steam machine, then it was a, even a smaller portable steam machine. It was trucks, then it was truck mounts. And so I invested uh, heavily. I always reinvested heavily in my business and and lived on less than my income. And so it took quite a few years to get to the number that he he had talked about. I purchased, once I learned there was such a thing as steam carpet cleaning, I managed to get a Mr. Steam Model 44 back in, back in the 70s. And that changed things for me quite a bit because these carpets were really filthy. And I was struggling to get them clean. And so we used the five, what I called the five-step process. You know, basically it was, it was vacuuming and then steam, then shampooing, the 16-inch rotary shampooer, then steam cleaning. And rushing up the pile with a groomer or whatever, and then uh, putting down traffic paper, which was really just porous butcher paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, as far as income, it took a little while, but I kept growing my business. And and the truck mount steam cleaning was really, really amazing for me at the time. It it really changed everything. It was the first one north of Everett. And we could clean carpets deeper and faster and so on. And the customers, of course, were very impressed. And all this time, I was very proud. I was really a proud carpet cleaner. I couldn't wait to tell the next person what a great carpet cleaner I was. So I loved I loved the work. I loved the results. The customers who were 80% women, residential work, mm-hmm. they referred me constantly. So it just started to go on its own. Oh, good. Yeah, and I didn't realize that uh, you were a two-stepper. I was a two-stepper also with the uh, shampoo machine and the hot water extraction portable afterwards. But then when I went to truck mounts, like you said, it changed things because now we didn't have to clean everything twice, move everything twice, block and tab everything twice. So you really right. became more efficient as as a provider of services. So that's great. Now, were you always an owner-operator? Is that something that you did or did you hire employees and staff? Or how did, what did that look like? Yeah, I started hiring my first employee. An interesting thing about that is I figured, well, if I could do, you know, X number of square feet a day or X number of dollars per day, when I hire somebody, I'll I'll do twice as much. <laughs> and it was yeah. quite a lesson to learn. To, well, no, you, you can't do twice as much. Maybe you can do 80% more. Right. And that was a lesson that continued throughout my life where you hire your third person and then you think, well, I'll get, okay, two times 80 plus myself. And, and no, 
The third person is less because you end up doing more managerial, more administrative work and that kind of thing. So it was an interesting lesson that continued up to the point later on in life where I had 200 associates and, you know, you start building all this management structure and, mm-hmm. and, and layers within your organization. So you you don't get hiring your second person. You won't, you shouldn't expect twice as much, twi- twice, twice as much. much output. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because now someone has to manage that new employee. And and that's what I find with a lot of carpet cleaners that come to classes. They want to talk at break back when we could have classes back when we could go places and see people face to face and shake hands and talk with them. They would say the same things of I'm thinking about hiring my first person. I said, well, before you do that, here's some things you want to think about uh, moving forward, because it's something that I never thought about either of. I had a helper that would go with me and my training program was basically what I call headliner osmosis. Whatever I knew he was supposed to just learn by being around me and taking in all the aura of who I was and understanding it. And when he got on his own, he was terrible because I never taught him anything. He said, every time I, you were with the customer, I was hauling stuff from the truck. So I never saw any of that. I was busy doing my thing, not watching you do yours. And so my training program kind of failed at that point. So, okay, so we're, we're in the timeline now. We're probably getting close to the 80s, I'm thinking, somewhere in there. Well, I mean, to the mid-70s, if you want to hear more of that history, I eventually moved out of the house. And I, was, I had bought by then. I was able to buy a house, actually, with a small down payment. Moved in. It was a split-level house. And I used the whole bottom of the house, which is about a thousand square feet and a double and a almost a double car garage. In those days, a lot of times we'd bring furniture in for cleaning. And but neighbors got tired of all the cars parked out front (laughs) and actually actually turned me into the city. (laughs) So I was forced to move, and it was the best thing that ever happened. I was forced to move into a rental shop that was Mm -hmm. about, I think it was 1600 square feet. And I think it cost me $350 a month. And from that point on, of course, sometimes you grow into the size of your facility. So I continue to grow. I bought a, of course, I met, I bought a, my first, I'd actually bought the second driveline truck mount ever produced in the world by Steamback company in 1974. Mm-hmm. And that was a, it was a Steamback unit, a 1974 Dodge van. And it was $12,500. So, but that was still a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And, and speaking of people helping you, you know, the bank, they had me fill out a financial statement or a loan application, which is basically a financial statement. And I did it. I, I just filled in the numbers the way I thought they were supposed to be filled in. So the salesman, the Steamback salesman, Walt, Walt Grise, goes to the bank with me. And, and the banker asks for my paperwork and I hand it to him. And he's looking it over and I'm just sitting there quiet. Probably takes him 10, 15 minutes to read over the sap. And he says, and you say you made this much and you say this and you say that. Uh, he starts writing new numbers on the, on the credit, on the credit application <laughs> form. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't realize what was going on first, but he was, the banker himself was making sure I got a loan for oh. $12,000, $12,700 because I wouldn't have got the loan. He was changing the numbers to make it work right. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so that's another another person that was very generous with me. Today, they certainly lose their job over mm-hmm. doing something like that. But anyway, over the years, I bought a 74 uh, steam back unit. I bought a 77 steam back unit. And then in, by 1979, I'd bought a high cube van and built a steam back unit into the back with huge water tanks so I could do water damage restoration and other kinds of activities. So we had a three-truck operation. We had uh, seven, and they were full-time. I didn't I didn't use part-time. So one way or another, we'd keep them busy. If they weren't cleaning carpets or furniture or rugs or, or those kinds of things, why we'd be cleaning the trucks or changing the oil or, or cleaning the shop or doing whatever was necessary so that they got in their full eight hours. Hmm. And the thing I learned early on, I'd had no management experience like you. I thought at first they would just learn from absorption. But one of the things I learned early on is if I if I shared the revenues, so I pay them an hourly wage, but they also got a piece of the work that they did. Mm. And I don't remember what percentage. 
but it was substantial. So if they go out and, and do a $200 job, I think they might have gotten as much as 10% of that job plus their hourly fee, plus time and a half on their hourly fee if they were working overtime, over 40 hours in those days, actually. Mm-hmm. So I learned that by sharing the revenues, that was very successful. And I, I always felt my employees were motivated. They seemed to understand it was about doing quality work. They, I think they represented me very well in all those years. And of course, they went to all the different schools. So I invested in these people the same way I invested in my company. Any seminar that would come up within the Pacific Northwest, maybe it was a CCINW, any kind of certification that would be available, they I paid all those costs for them, and they seemed to appreciate that as well. Well, yeah, you're investing not only uh, the commission structure from the company into the employee, but you're also investing in their education, which you knew how it helped you get to the point that you were at because of the Ed York seminar that you went to, that you had to you know borrow from a finance company to, to be able to hand, have that. But you recognize how important that was. And I think that's one of the keys is understanding the importance of the education piece. That similar story, I, I remember going to my first AWCC meeting and thinking to myself, well, I don't want to say much because I don't want them to steal my information. I don't want <laughs> oh, to learn yeah. my secrets. And what I realized very quickly was there were no secrets. Everyone had yeah. the same challenges that I had and that I thought were challenges. And so we, we kind of came together and solved some of those problems as a group rather than individually. If I think if I think of other carpet cleaners that have been successful, I actually don't know any of them that didn't take advantage of educational opportunities. You, you just you just saved yourself so much grief by by getting all this training, and you became more professional. Right. Yeah, I think that you saw someone who had done it before and was telling you how this is what my thought process was. Here's what you can do. But you're always going to take some nugget away, no matter what it is, no matter who it is. And not only that, but you're going to learn from the peer group that's also in the training course. Exactly. That you're going to be able to see that. And I know that you continue that education piece as you move forward. But interesting, you mentioned as you when they got the cube van together, uh, because you were starting to do water damage restoration. So explain, like in, in the late 70s, early 80s, what water damage restoration was back then. It was very different than what it is today. Wow. Well, I started doing water damage early on, right after I got my first portable. And I just started telling people, look, and I, and I didn't know very much, but I said, look, if, you, if your carpet or home gets wet, call me. I've got this super powerful suction machine, blah, blah, blah. And I can suck the water out. And the first few jobs I did, we'd, we'd extract the water. But sometimes we actually ended up cutting all the seams, removing the carpet, hauling it down to a plant like Ace Cartosian or D.A. Burns and Sons and having them process those rug carpets through their rug cleaning equipment. The problem with that a lot of times is the carpet would shrink. It would never, it wouldn't, it would be difficult or impossible to put it back with pre-loss condition. It, it was very labor intensive and it made, and for me, it meant a trip to Seattle, which was 60 some miles away. So it was a, it was a big deal. And I heard about Lloyd Weaver. He showed up at some convention. He had a seminar. And I, I think it was a one-day seminar. It was very expensive. But like I mentioned, I went to every seminar I could. And it was, mm-hmm. I think it was $250. And I went to I went to his seminar. And that kind of that kind of shined the light. I never ended up buying much equipment from Lloyd. I think I bought a couple of air movers and maybe a moisture sensor. And I didn't really use him as a mentor. I don't know why. I never really Maybe it's because I was a little shy or whatever, but I never really called to ask his advice on anything. But I started doing on-site drying. Mm-hmm. And basically, some things haven't changed that much. I mean, basically, you, we would extract as much water as we can. We would make a decision to either leave the pad in place or to remove the pad. We place air movers underneath the corners. We would float that room on a cushion of air. And three days or five days or seven days later, it would be more or less dry, at least as far as our moisture sensors of the time could determine. Sure. Sure. <laughs> and we started doing on-site water damage restoration. And where I really learned a lot about, of course, I started studying that on my own. I started studying all kinds of building materials, construction techniques, because 
we have the Skagit River out here and it would flood every few years. You'd get 20 or 30 or 40 homes, maybe more that were badly flooded. And they might only have an inch of water, maybe a partially, maybe just mm -hmm. a partial room. But also we had homes that had four feet of water in them. And so people would call us in and we would go in there and attempt to dry that structure down. And so by and by, we learned about dehumidification. We learned about the effect of temperature on drying. We learned about different types of penetrating and non-penetrating moisture meters through the late 70s. And we learned how to rip out drywall and, and how to clean mud. I mean, these homes weren't just water. These were mud. And so sure. I remember the first time I ever took my truck mount, adjusted it up to 1,000 PSI, and just pressure. the first step was to pressure wash all the walls, furnishings, everything in that structure, you know, the appliances, because just you just wanted to get rid of the silt to see what you even had to work with. And and so you go in and you add thousands of gallons of water. Well, it's it's, it's not a problem. Everything's soaked anyway. Right. And I remember driving through two feet of water to get to a job because, you know, sometimes the roads weren't accessible, but maybe you could still drive there. It wasn't that deep. And it, but the house would be setting a little higher and and starting work on these homes with uh, while the area was still flooded. Of course, that all changed later on, I think, with different organizations started blocking off the roads and making it tougher to do these kinds of things, you know, government involvement mm -hmm. with national flood and those kinds of things. Right. <laughs> but Yeah, because a lot of that rising water probably wasn't covered by insurance. I would imagine your homeowner's policy wasn't going to cover any of that. It's kind of similar to what it is today. That's right. In fact, in the early days, I don't even know, and I don't even think those homes had national flood. So, yeah, they were out of pocket pretty much for the restoration. They were doing everything they can to reduce the total cost of remediation and reconstruction. I mean, sometimes we'd get to a house and they'd have all the drywall and insulation ripped out, you know, if it was deep, two or three feet deep or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would set up air movers and dehumidifiers and so on and start drying the structure down. We're going to come back and talk about that because you mentioned some things about studying the building construction. I want to get to that. after we take a break and hear from another one of our sponsors. Well, so we'll be right back with the Keep It Clean podcast. I can see it now. Your cleaning company markets on social media, but you're not seeing the results you'd hoped for. You often wonder about what to post and if another before and after will finally convert more sales. Hi, I'm Ashley Gregory Hackett. I'm a digital marketing coach and I grew up in the cleaning industry. In fact, you're listening to my dad's podcast right now. I've created a solution for cleaning business marketers that takes the struggle out of social. The content cleanup. 50 done for you social media templates that will allow you to set your social in as little as five minutes a week. Along with my proven spotless social system, you'll spend less time on your social media with bigger results. For a limited time, the content cleanup is available at a significant discount. Don't wait. Visit ashleythecoach.com slash content cleanup. Hey, we're back with Claude Blackburn on the Keep It Clean podcast. We we're just talking about the beginnings of the water damage restoration industry, basically, at that point. And Claude was mentioning how he was studying information about building sciences, I guess would be the term we'd use today, of how the structure interfaced with humidity and, and those kinds of things. So if you wouldn't mind sharing where you found that information back in those days, because I think that would be very interesting to our listeners. Wow. That's a, that's a tough, that's a good question. I mean, I literally would go to libraries and study books. I mean, you didn't have a lot of sources of information for that kind of thing, or maybe I had a limited understanding of where you could go for that kind of information. So I had a good sense of all the different carpet cleaning associations. I had a good sense of all the vendors that supplied carpet cleaning, restoration equipment, that kind of thing in the, in the mid to late seventies. But nobody really talked about building. And so I would I would study. I would study magazines. I would study books at the library. I would ask contractors questions when I ran into them on 
on site sometimes. And some of it was just trial and error. And, and we just we just tried mm-hmm. things and, and learned what worked and what didn't work, what we could save, what we couldn't save, and, and those items that maybe we saved but we shouldn't have. <laughs> and, <laughs> sure. <it's, laughs> and so, no, there wasn't. I, in the 70s, I didn't really have a good source that I could go to. I don't think the vendors at that time, I didn't know about building science industry. I did get tied up with uh, ASHRAE. That would have been later on when I started studying dehumidification to a, a greater level regarding the dehumidification, air handling systems, and those kinds of things related mm-hmm. equipment that we were manufacturing. Yeah, yeah I don't know. As, as a young carpet cleaner myself coming in around that time, middle 80s myself, I was at a Midwest Area Professional Show. They called it the MAP Show that was usually held around the Chicago area every year. And a gentleman, the late Mr. Bob Bonwell, actually got me involved in the water damage industry. He was selling, I believe it was a Sterling truck mount, at a truck mount, I think it was the Butler Corporation under a different name. And he said, I don't even get out of bed for cleaning carpet anymore, but you give me a water damage and I am all over that thing. And, and I, so I just picked his brain for a little bit about what is, what are you talking about here? And he started explaining to me what it was and who was paying for it because of broken pipes, faulty hot water heaters, those kinds of things. And it really piqued my interest at that point in time. And that's when I'm kind of moving into the late 80s, early 90s, when you started to see that groups of associates were getting together to write standards. They were, you know, talking about, you may not remember this, but the first time we actually met was at an IICRC meeting. It happened to be my first IICRC meeting that I attended. And if you recall how that all went, the first day was the certification board meeting. And I wasn't officially on the board yet. The board meeting started the following day. And so I left, my break time didn't coincide with the agenda. And so I left the room quickly. When I came back, everybody was in a different chair. And it was the breakout (laughs) sessions that I was never told about. So I sat down in my original chair and you were seated in the chair next to me. And it was, I believe, one of the first S-500 meetings that had ever taken place. And you looked at me and you did, he had no idea who I was. I just sat down in the chair next to you and you said, hey, would you mind taking notes during the meeting? I said, absolutely. And so I was the scribe for the first S-500, official S-500 meeting. And I sat in on a lot of those meetings after that and the information that changed hands at that time was just simply incredible of a group of people who didn't really have a lot of background or not. I don't want to say background, didn't have a lot of information to say this is valid and this isn't valid. There wasn't a lot of science to back it up, but it was practical experience in the field as to what was really happening out there. So if you can take us forward from there, you were looking at, and you were doing a lot of this work yourself the standards really started to address the issue of how this industry was going to start to formulate at that point in time. Wow. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't really thought much about that for many, many years, but I guess I was attending IICRC meetings and I wasn't really on the board. I didn't represent an organization, but I think I was showing up at some of them. And I think it was Jeff Bishop. He said, would you create the first IICRC water damage restoration examination? And by then we were out teaching. I've been teaching classes. This is now we're jumped to the eighties. So I've been teaching classes. I mean, I'd gone out and I'd started doing one day water damage restoration seminars all over the country. I'd written the Carpet Cleaner's Guide to Water Damage Restoration. I think I was in the midst of writing Restorative Drying, which was like a 450-page manual on water damage restoration. Oh, maybe that came a little later, but he asked me to write the exam. So I put four or five guys I knew together, and we started working on the first exam. And I think that took a long time. I think, I don't know if it was a year or two years, but it, it took a long time, and I tried to do it as a consensus process. Mm-hmm. In other words, everybody would could submit questions and I'd collect them and condense them, then send them back to everybody, ask for input and so on and so forth. And then then when we got together, we would debate best questions and argue the ele- the technical elements of those various questions because we knew that was going to drive school behavior. And uh, and so our team put that first exam together. Well I think it was a little while after that 
Uh, so that was adopted by IRCOC officially as one of their courses. And I think before that, they must have had the carpet cleaning. I think they had the upholstery cleaning. I think they had a few other courses anyway. So mm -hmm. maybe water damage was the third one in. Well, then, then I, of course, I'm attending all these. By then, I have a manufacturing company. We're manufacturing equipment. I'm going to all the trade shows, all the meetings and those kinds of things as a, as a manufacturer exhibitor. But I'm also, because I'm interested, I'm attending a lot of sessions, going to the various technical sessions and so on. But I think it was at ICRC meeting where, again, the issue of the standard came up. And uh, I don't know if I volunteered or whatever, but I ended up being the chairman of that committee. And I did, and I took the same approach. I tried to put a team together. I tried to put an immediate team together, but a lot of people were very interested in these standards. And so I had kind of a secondary team. I think there was maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 people on that secondary. And so we started working on the standards and, and it was, it was very, it was very challenging. I mean, those standards I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on those standards and, and some of the team members spent a good deal of time as well. We even had meetings. I mean, one time people flew all the way out here to Mount Vernon, Washington, and we met out here. And, and so we met not just at IICRC. We'd always meet there for a day, quite a bit of time, but also we would meet in other locations. Mm -hmm. I don't have a whole lot more than that. I know it took a long time, a couple of years, I think, to actually mm -hmm. oh, yeah. get yeah, that it was, finished. It was, a, it was quite a yeah. process, but it was one of those things that you kind of saw the passion that people had for what they did. So you mentioned by that point you were a manufacturer. So I'm going to, I apologize for jumping forward a little bit, but I'm going to now jump backwards again. So when, how did you make the decision to become a manufacturer? What was the, you were in the business, you were doing the flood work, and then you decided yeah. there wasn't the right equipment and you wanted to make the right equipment. What did, what did that look like? Well, I was doing, I was doing about 50% of my net profits were coming from water damage restoration by the late 70s. So even though it wasn't 50% of my volume, as you know, when you have rental equipment that you're leaving on site, it's making you money while you sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, it's demanding, of course, you're on call 24-7, and I was as well. And uh, you'd work all day, you'd put in your 10 hours, and then at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd get a call and <laughs> go out in a water damage job. So it, it was challenging, but it was very profitable, especially when you were able to put that equipment in place. So we were doing a lot of that work. We'd learned a lot of things. And actually, it wasn't my intention to get into water damage restoration equipment. I simply had discovered foam blocks. So I was in my garage. I was, this was in 1978. And in those days, every carpet cleaner in the United States bought wood blocks. And now I'm forgetting some of the numbers. I think there was 400 blocks in a box and you'd pay about 20, $20 $25 for these blocks. They were just two inch by two inch by three quarter inch plywood, basically. And all of the, a lot of the furniture, as you know, was flat based furniture. If you mm -hmm. kind of clean behind it, you had to elevate it so it'd dry and you would get stains and so on. So I'm in my garage. I'm totally out of wood, uh, wooden blocks and a UPS driver comes in. I open up the package and I happen to be some foam. Of course, it was light density foam. It was just one pound density foam. And I thought, oh, I could cut this foam up and I could use that instead of the wood blocks today. And that's what I did. Of course, I, I didn't know how to cut it. <laughs> I just saw. And then I got the idea, wow, I could, if I'm having this problem, because the foam blocks work better because the furniture would indent on the foam. It would crush it a little bit and the furniture would slide off. Whereas you may not remember the wood blocks, you get a couple of wood blocks underneath the furniture. You go to put the other two and the furniture would slide off the blocks. Oh. So that, was, that was a big problem. So Anyway, I made these blocks that were uh, three inch by three inch by one inch. And I went down to a foam producer where they make uh, billets of foam for floats. And they were, they were selling, they were putting out one pound density, one and a half pound density. I said, what's the most dense you could ever make foam? And they said, well, we could get 2.75 to three. And I said, that's what I want. And so they started creating me 20 foot by 16 inch by whatever billets, and and then I'd ask them to cut that in uh, sixteen inch cubes for me. 
and about that. Anyway, long story. I got into I got into manufacturing foam blocks. So I made a machine to cut cut foam blocks, and I'm selling these. So the first I try an ASCR list. I get a mailing list from ASCR, which is now called the Restoration Industry oh. Association. Anyway, it was the ASCR, previously known as AIDS, which yes. was not correct. <laughs> no. So, so they so they changed their name. But anyway, I got a list I, and I created a little box of foam blocks. And it was it was four inches by four inches by six inches. I stuffed it with 32 blocks, I guess, something like that. And I and I mailed 700 of these members a sample box with an order form. And I I remember opening the mailbox just stuffed full of checks for 26 bucks. They wanted to buy a box <laughs> of my phone block. I mean, it was back in the day of mail order, right? Because right. Th- that's, that's how you did it. I mean, so I knew I had something. So then I bought the national list, which I think was sick code 7217 professional carpet cleaners, 24,000. I spent every dime I had. So I guess maybe there's a moral to this is called risk taking, but I spent every last dime I had. I, it cost me about $25,000. And I mailed every carpet cleaner in the United States a sample box with an order form in it. Well, I didn't have a 22% order rate, but I had a pretty darn good order rate. <laughs> wow. So, so, so we're selling these blocks like crazy. I mean, I've never made this much money in my life. And it's uh, reasonably easy money. Well, nothing seemed easy in those days. But, but anyway, it was nice getting these chucks without, having, without cleaning a carpet. And it didn't take me long to figure out, look, Anybody can make these blocks. It's, this is not going to work over the long haul. So I just said to myself, what else do I know something about? And it was really the only other thing I knew anything about was water damage. So I built my first hydro dryer one, which was a metal dryer. It was a little different than Lloyd's. Actually, I had a hydro dryer one and a hydro dryer two. One was vertically orientated. And I put a illustration on one side of the order form was for the blocks and the other side was for my hydro dryer and I, I built 10 of them and I couldn't even hardly give them away I mean it was unbelievable it was terrible <laughs> <laughs> and uh, nobody wanted mine why would they buy mine when they could buy Lloyd's you know what what would be the point he'd been around <laughs> for a while and been selling these things and about that time that I was ready to give it up, there was a couple of situations, and 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 one of them I'll relate, and one of them I'll kind of not. But uh, a guy walked into my office and and said uh, he was looking for work, and he was an old guy, he's probably forty five years old. And of course, I'd never hired anybody like that before. And I said, "No, I don't have any work," and and I I didn't either. But and then he he goes starts to walk out of my office, and he sees that metal hydro dryer sitting there. He says, "What's that?" I told him how we use air movers underneath the carpet and on top of the carpet and blah, blah, blah. He says, I could make that out of fiberglass. He says, I'm a, I'm a mold maker. I could make, I could make that a mold. So, so we discussed pay. And I remember him telling me, he says, well, how much do you want? And he says, well, I want 10 bucks an hour. And I remember telling him, I says, well, that's what I make. Because <laughs> I paid myself a wage like an employee, right? That's true. But anyway, I hired I hired Harlan Wright. He made the first fiberglass mold uh, ever created for an air mover that I know of in the world. And we, at the time, were the big laminator in Skagit County. They were hand laminated. These were not chopped strand. Everyone was hand built. It took about four man hours to build a turbo dryer. Sixteen. Oh wow! And uh, I remember getting an order from U-Haul. So U-Haul Corporation was going into the rental business big time, spending hundreds of millions of dollars. One day I get a call, says, how much you charge for your turbo dryer? 1800 I think. And I said, well, they're 100 and, you know, if you buy more than 10, they're $189 each. No, $179 each. So I, that was the end of it. Never heard another word until about a week later, I get a purchase order for 2200 of our turbo dryers <laughs> from U-Haul Corp. They're, they're, they're opening up 1,100 stores and they're putting in two turbo dryers per store. Well, these were hand laminated. It was a crazy two years, us building oh, wow. those things by hand. And that's when I discovered rotational molding. Wow. And the story could just go on and on and on. But anyway, we got into rotational molding. We did our own molding, bottom molding machine. And it just grew from there. We started making a lot of different products. But in the background, 
the best thing I ever did was that we continued to offer education. So we had the one day school and we came out with a two day school. We came out with a three day school. We came out with a flood house. You know, we built those houses that we flooded and we continued to educate our customers. We brought out a marketing class. We brought out, which included pricing, how to price the services. We, we just continued to educate our customers. And I think because of that, we got a lot of loyalty back from our customers. I, I would I'll agree. Well, no, I, I think you're right because a, a lot of people knew who you were and what you were all about. And when I sold my company back in the early 2000s, uh, all of my equipment was blue. I, I didn't buy other equipment because I knew who you were and I knew what you were all about. And that's the only equipment I wanted in my company because I, I knew the story kind of behind it. And that was, for me, it was dryies. And, and you, your dedication to the educational piece of it was phenomenal. Uh, I had, uh, I think I've given it to a protege of mine, but I had your restoration handbook. The, the book that you wrote was a three ring binder, if I recall. Well, the first one, with, uh-huh. the first one, and it was it was amazing because there wasn't another place other than I know Jeff Bishop had written a book that was on water restoration also, but they were different in in a way that you had to read both of them actually to, to figure it out. But the other thing I'm going to give you credit for was the psychometric chart because oh, yeah. I remember that came out at one of our meetings and we're looking at this curve and these lines and this other stuff. And the funny part about it was I just had retaken about five years ago the water restoration course because mine had lapsed. And I remember when you first handed it out, you said, all these numbers on the right don't mean anything. They're for the refrigeration industry. And we just wanted to plot where our grains of moisture per pound of air were. And then when I went back to the water restoration course, I was, no, no, all the numbers on the right are really the important ones because that gives you your vapor pressure differentials and things like that. And so it was, you know, it, but it, it grew from there because until you put this team together, until you put that S500 group together, we didn't have a group of people like that that all came together to give the best practices and how that all worked. And so it was before that, it was a cowboy industry. And now there's science behind things and there's all these other things coming from a carpet cleaner that did what a carpet cleaner does, evolved. Yeah. 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 That was, uh, that was an exciting time. I mean, we really tried to add science to the industry and we loved helping our customers. I mean, that's, that's what I live for is what really got me started with helping our customers was that first national mailing, or maybe, maybe it was the second, but we, we started doing national mailings and I made a mistake one time as saying return postage guaranteed. And I don't remember what that was. Maybe it was 25, I think it was 25 cents per return. Now, these were bulk mail. You know, mm-hmm. you do bulk mail. It's, it's fairly inexpensive. But I had it on the envelope or something, return postage guaranteed. And I got I, some nowadays I get some of my numbers mixed up. But it was something like 20% returns. And the, the, amount of money, the amount of money that cost me was a fortune, right? <laughs> because, and but the key point that I got out of that was, well, don't put return postage guaranteed if you don't mean it. And secondly... In my mind, I decided that 20% of our of our industry was going out of business every year. Mm. Now, when I look back at that and knowing what I know now, that probably wasn't true. But in my mind, and for many, many years afterwards, I thought, you know what? This is crazy. We're losing 20% of the carpet cleaners in the United States are going out of business. And when are they going out of business? In my mind, because I only have my limited experience in the country, right? Mm-hmm. They're going out of business in the winter. I mean, in, in my area, it was spring and fall cleaning. Those were oh, yeah. those were the residential times. Women, that was a solid thinking. And so there was there was very little residential carpet cleaning from, from the time the Christmas trees went up until springtime. And so I decided that it was my role in life wasn't really just it wasn't just about making money, although I was a good numbers person. It was about helping the industry survive. And I knew that if I could take those carpet cleaners and help them expand into water damage restoration, their busiest months would be offset. That would a lot of times with heavy rains and broken pipes and leaking roofs and all those kinds of things. A lot of those, you know, November, December, January, February, and March, and even into the spring without the kinds of flooding they could really fill in and be successful and not go out of business. And so that became my mission in life was to take 
all cleaners and help them have this expansion opportunity. So yeah, it was about making money, but it wasn't about making money. It was about sure. trying to help people. Well, you, you did I, it for this cleaner. I mean, when we got onto water damage and we started to understand it, that's exactly what happened for us. Our busy months became January, February, March. And then you'd get a lot of floods in the spring and we'd get fires in the early season and the you know, later fall season. And, and we enjoyed the restoration business immensely. I didn't like the insurance side of it. That was, that was my issue that I had to deal with, but no, you did that. You accomplished that goal. I know for, at least for myself, and I'm sure that there's 10,000 other cleaners that would say the exact same thing. If you, if you asked them, you know, how did water damage restoration work for you? And that's what I see a lot of is cleaners that are evolving. You know, I started out as a window washer and then moved into uh, janitorial floor work and then into carpets. We all have that pathway that we take to get to the places that we're eventually designed to go. And I think that's if you follow your career, it's the exact same path that people are on today. So based on that, and, and I'll ask you one last question here before we part, what advice would you give a cleaner today that maybe would face similar hurdles to what you had as you were starting out in the business? Well, I actually made a couple of notes about what advice I'd give because I don't usually give a lot of advice, but I think some things that helped me is that we treat our employees, our customers, our suppliers, and other stakeholders, our community, and everyone else with respect, that we treat them as an equal. I think that really, that really worked off for me. I didn't have an uppity, bossy attitude towards my employees. I figured they were just as good as I was and treated them with respect. Uh, I think it's important to work for something bigger than money. So in all phases of my life as an adult, I created something bigger. And you could argue that these bigger meanings or these bigger purposes, you can argue them back and forth, but they help, they helped me and they help other people move forward. Mm -hmm. So people don't really work for money. Well, they, yeah, they want the money and they want the benefits and they want all the basics. They want to take care of themselves and their family. But if we can give somebody a higher purpose, then they really work a lot better. They, and so that, that really worked for me, especially at Dry's Products. We built a world-class company because we had the people that were motivated to build a world-class company. For carpet cleaners, I would say to take pride in our work. I mean, I love cleaning carpets. I love dealing with the customers. I made it my goal to be proud, always feel proud when I finish the job. And and if somebody's out there and they're cleaning carpets or they're cleaning upholstery or whatever they're doing, if they can't feel proud, they're probably in the wrong line of work. They should probably go find something that they can actually be, feel some pride about doing. So that comes to mind. Another thing I think I learned from a mentor early on was why not be in the top 10%? You know, people say you should be this, you should be an attorney, you should be a doctor, you should be an engineer. I say it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't really matter what field, but if you're going to be in that field, be in the top 10%. The top 10% can make a good living in anything. At least I, I think so. Okay. And so why not, be in, why not be in the top 10%? And I think an odd one that I don't think people always buy into completely, but that is as simple as don't cheat. And you know, don't cheat your employees. Don't cheat your customers. Don't take advantage of people. Don't even cheat on your taxes. It's funny, you know, it's, I've had, I've given a lot of grants and I do a lot of philanthropy and I have a lot of programs that I've started. And it's interesting, like <laughs> I've heard it so many times that people had a small business and they were cheating on their taxes. You know, they go into the bank to say, buy a house. Well, now all they can report is $20,000 worth of annual income versus the really, the 50 that they really made it. It just doesn't pay. I And the other thing that comes out is when you go to sell your business. I mean, if you go to sell your business, you don't want to say to the new buyer, well, I know I know it only shows I made $40,000 worth of profit, but I really made a hundred, <laughs> but I put it all right. in my pocket. It doesn't matter. Your business is worth based on $40,000 of profits. I mean, you know, so this, this idea of cheating, and I think it's become all too commonplace in America to cheat someplace. Uh, I found it interesting with my own father. I, I left home at 16 and uh, dropped out of school when I was 16, left home when I was 16. And, 
And I didn't really have an interface with my dad. He'd run off with some young woman and blah, 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 long story. But years later, I was supporting him, actually. And I said, or he said to me, he says, I don't. And about that, that time, I had about 100, 150 employees. He says, he says, I don't understand how you could ever have 100 employees. They'll just steal you blind, won't they? And then I knew because I'd never had anything stolen from me. And that his perception of the life was that he stole from his employers. Wow. I mean, I hate to say that about your own dad, but yeah. that's where we get our perceptions, you know. And and so it just it, I really didn't have any problems with that. Now, maybe something was going on in the background <laughs> that I never found <laughs> out about, right? But this idea where the boss can come in and take money out of the till, well, guess what? The employees are going to take money out of your till too, one way or another. And so I don't, I don't buy into that. So that's some advice I have for carpet cleaners, people thinking about expanding their carpet cleaning business that I kind of made note and it made a difference for me and it worked for me. That's great. And thank you for sharing that because I know some of that is very personal to you, obviously. So, so thank you for doing that. I appreciate you taking the time with us today, telling your story. I think it's going to be inspirational for a lot of folks out there who are maybe in the same, looking at those same obstacles that you faced. And now they look and say, well, here's somebody who got past that. And that's kind of what the Keep It Clean podcast is all about, is to give that background of individuals who have become successful in this industry we didn't start out successful. You, you had a very interesting story of getting ahead and, and obviously seeing the breaks as you got them for what they were and you looking at the opportunities and cashing in on those to create that pathway for you to get to the point uh, because you're an, I think you're an inquisitive person naturally where you're looking for what does this mean? Why is it like this? That, that type of thing. So I appreciate you sharing that story with us today. Well, thank you, Dane. It's been, been my pleasure to share a little bit of my history and, and to chat with you after all these years. And I'd love to catch up with you on a different basis another time as well. So That sounds great. We'll, we'll, we'll have to schedule that. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Dane. All right. Thanks, Claude. Wow, what a great story. Thank you, Claude. Well, another edition of Keep It Clean is complete. I hope you find our topics and guests refreshing and inspiring. And I also hope that you will like, subscribe, and review so you won't miss a single episode. I'm your host, Dane Gregory, wishing you well in your cleaning and restoration endeavors. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to keep it clean. <laughs>